Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As you've come to rely on Deep State Radio's in-depth expert analysis, we hope that you will consider becoming a member to support our efforts. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter, delivered to your inbox each evening. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MARCH2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to a very special edition of the podcast. I'm joined today by Tumas Henrik Ilves, who served as the fourth president of Estonia from 2006 until 2016, currently serves on the Advisory Council of the Munich Security Conference and many other distinguished organizations. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting. You do one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> well, you're very, you're very, very kind to say so. Clearly, I've I've followed you on Twitter and in other media and followed your commentary as we've gone deeper and deeper into this uh, Ukraine crisis. I, I believe I saw you on, on Morning Joe one day as well, discussing it about a week before it started. You are closer to what is going on there. You're closer to the nature of the Russian threat. And I think you've been trying to communicate the nature of that threat to a lot of people who particularly here in the United States, didn't quite understand it until a week ago. What do you think the world has come to recognize in the past two weeks that people who live in your part of the world have known all along? Well, I think February 24th, which also happens to be Estonian Independence Day, but is the date the post-Cold War era ended. I think that it was uh, dying for a long time. And uh, I would say also that in uh, the swath of countries from mine down to Bulgaria, Romania, uh, have thought it ended a long time ago. But uh, I think uh, the Western part of the European Union and uh, NATO allies, uh, at least leaderships, were unwilling to accept that and persisted in this illusion that uh, everything is fixable and doable, though I would say that from 2008 or perhaps even since 2007 with the cyber attacks on my own country, that we've had uh, been somewhat more dubious about the prospects of uh, having Russia develop in a positive direction. But 24 February killed it. You know, three days later, you see Schultz claiming the end of Ostpolitik of 50 years. 
massive increase in defense expenditure, a unity in the European Union and in NATO that we have not seen, I don't know, since the 60s or 70s, certainly not during my adult life. So I think it's quite the change. To what extent do you think this is associated with one individual, Vladimir Putin? And to what extent do you think it's associated with something permanent in the relationship between Russia and the West? I think it would be too depressing to say that it's uh, inherent in Russia, but certainly the policies and of the not only Putin himself, but the people that he has chosen to surround himself with, and they in turn have chosen to assist them, has has been has had a strong anti-Western bias throughout. And much of it, I think, I mean, I think it was first noticed by the biography of Putin by Peter Baker and uh, Susan Glasser, which came out in like 2003. And the book begins with Putin addressing on Czechist Day, which is the day of the founding of the Cheka, which became the NKVD and which ultimately became the FSB. He addressed them that day and he said, we have fulfilled command number one, assume total control. So we're looking back to what, 2003, 2004, when there was already an attitude of the KGB or whatever form you want to call it, the Czechists running the country, which had never happened before, which they had always been servants of political power, not the political power itself. This has simply gotten worse and worse. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you have a, a fairly unsavory security establishment, but which had to, you know, in the old days, had to listen to the Politburo. And before that, had to listen to the Tsar because the Ochrana, which was the Tsarist era secret police, which was no charmer anyway, actually, uh, doing many of the same things that the KGB and the FSB do, such as blowing up people, their own people. It's a bad tradition, but it's not Russia, but it became Russia or it rules Russia. And I think that's where the problem lies. One of the things that opened the eyes of a lot of people in the United States, because frankly, they weren't paying attention, was Putin's speech before he invaded. And in that speech, he didn't talk really so much about Ukraine and NATO. He didn't really talk so much about the other excuses he's made in the past. He really dwelt at some length on a kind of version of Russian history that is not actually historical, but had some relationship to history in which he seemed not to want to restore the old Soviet Union, as many people had talked about, but that he actually wanted to restore the Russian empire of the czars. When you live where you do, when you are one of the countries, you know, along that border that, you know, has shifted back and forth, that must have resonated. How did how did that resonate in the Baltics, which for a long time people have thought as as the most vulnerable and most coveted part of this region? Well, I think it actually also resonated in Finland, which until 1917 was also part of the Russian Empire, and certainly in Poland. So I think it, it resonated further. We have been um, happily moving along in the um, in Europe for thirty one years, and I mean we've been a little worried, or some occasionally we get upset about things that Russia does. But in general, 
it's kind of all in the past. And so I think this brought this attitude so forcefully expressed, I think made a lot of people scratch their heads. And certainly the entire series of developments in Ukraine in the past, say, um, year have um, made a lot of people happy where NATO and, and me personally, since I spent all my time when I was foreign minister, that was did that for five and a half years trying to get us in there, which worked ultimately. And so there is that sense that, OK, we're in NATO and yes, we are more vulnerable, but even more vulnerable is West Berlin. And that really what's, what keeps us safe is deterrence, the knowledge that, well, that's what Article 5 says. If they, they do, in fact, try something with militarily uh, against our countries here, then, um, they'll be, then Omsk and Tomsk are also in trouble. I mean, <laughs> that's really what deterrence comes down to. And which is also, as we've seen in the past several weeks, maybe even months, increasing um, public support for joining NATO and uh, traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden, where in both countries, the public support for joining NATO is over 50%, which is unprecedented. It was always down in the 20s, and now suddenly it's over 50. So uh, I think it's made a lot of people think. And of course, uh, I think, well, as I said, I think especially the 24th of February was a real eye-opener for basically all of Europe. I'm not so sure about the United States, but... It's been an eye-opener to some degree. The, you know, the, I think as a month ago, the general consensus was Europe wouldn't hold together, the U.S. wouldn't be strong, and the American people wouldn't care. And that included, by the way, I mean, I had meetings with very senior people in the Biden administration a month ago, and they thought, well, we'll never be able to do an energy sanctions because the pushback would be too great. And, right. and, and of course, you talked about Germany. A lot, a lot has changed in all of that. Today, on this prior issue of, NATO, of the size of NATO, I saw a report, and I don't know whether it's accurate or not, but I saw a report that said, that President Zelensky was willing to consider the possibility that going forward after this war, that Ukraine would be a neutral state. And, uh, you know, I'm in the school and I, uh, I uh, that thinks that, you know, the, the issue of Ukraine joining NATO was not actually central here to Putin's motivation. But I also think that had Ukraine been part of NATO, Putin wouldn't have done this for the, all the reasons you just talked about with regard to to the Baltics. What's your view of Ukraine in NATO and Ukraine in the EU? Okay, well, regarding NATO, uh, it's clear that they're very far off, uh, very far away. Uh, then again, you know, I would, I, as I said, I mean, we were as well with considerable opposition to ever joining NATO on the part of Germany, France, and the UK which was also one of the reasons when I became foreign minister, I said, we have to do everything to get in the European Union, because once we're there, those countries can't veto us, because you can't really veto another EU member, because that's like politically suicide. But the problem is that Ukraine is very far from both of them. Mitigating the NATO side, as one uh, senior US official told me 25 years ago, he said, you guys are okay, but we take Croatia in a minute. And I said, why is that? And he said, 
because they've really fought a war. And from a military point of view, I think there may be many people in NATO going, well, you know, they were pretty damn good. On the EU side, well, there's a big discussion of giving them candidate status. Turkey has had candidate status since 1964. So, I mean, candidate status is not really like all it's cracked up to be. On the other hand, I have also, I mean, the metaphor I used explaining NATO versus EU to my own public here when we were in the process of it, that people say, why do you have to go to the EU? Why don't we go to NATO? I said, well, you know what? Joining NATO is buying a suit of armor and every year you pay 2% taxes on it. Joining the European Union is a long process whereby you basically replace slowly, step by step, every one of your osteoporosis ruined bones. You can't do it all at once. You've got to take out one and then you've got to take out another. And really fulfilling the negotiations really is a long, arduous process. And not only is it long and arduous, but it actually does completely change the way your country runs. And if you don't do the successfully negotiations, well, then you wait. So, I mean, I kind of think that the candidate process might be very good for Ukraine, but it will be years, just as it was for everyone else. It took years to get there. One of the things that people have started to talk about now, and I you know, suspect it's, it's rather premature, is what happens next. People talk about off-ramps for Putin, but it looks like he's going to keep forging ahead and destroying much of Ukraine. Ukraine will fight back fiercely. Putin will get into exactly the situation he wanted to avoid, which is kind of Afghanistan 2.0, where there's a long, fierce insurgency against a group of people who are better equipped and more numerous and who are going to fight better than the people did in Afghanistan. And this could go on for a long, long time. At the conclusion of that, you already have people saying, well, you know, the Russians should go back to the status quo ante in January, or they should go back to the status quo ante in 2014. They need to rebuild Ukraine. They need to guarantee security somehow, or we need to give them the golden bridge to escape over and give them some kind of a victory in all of this, which I have to say, personally, that sounds anathema to me, but but how do you feel about that? Giving um, any sense of victory as the uh, reward as a reward for violating all of the principles of international relations since the UN Charter in 1945 strikes me as something we cannot do because it says, well, it was kind of okay, right? I mean, and that won't that really won't fly, I don't think. Now, what we see, I mean, I see it more as a sort of a, a rather uh, quick race right now because it seems he's running out of his precision weapons. And we already saw this today with a 100-kilo bomb thrown in Mariupol, which basically made a crater that was, I don't know how, 100 feet wide and 30 feet deep and blew basically destroyed an entire maternity hospital. This is going into basically sort of a war of destruction. And if you don't have those uh, precision missiles, well, that's what he's going to do. And perhaps, I mean, it seems more and more like he just wants to destroy the country. Uh, that, And if there aren't any Ukrainians in this wasteland that he's created, so much the better. 
you know, I mean, trying to figure out what a crazy guy is doing is is kind of difficult. I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm not a psychiatrist, but certainly it has been it is irrational anger and his uh, hatred toward Ukrainians is something which makes everything possible. I mean, he really talks about Ukrainians kind of like Adolf Hitler talked about all the various minorities, not only Jews, but gypsies and other people. And it's scary because it's not, it's not, he's not driven by a rational calculus. And this is, and at the same time, I don't see, I don't see any movement to replace him. I mean, some people say, well, palace coup, those yes men around him are not going to do a palace coup because they know their, I mean, their fates are so tied to him that they're all going to be Christmas tree ornaments on the lampposts around the Kremlin if they, once Putin is gone. I mean, that's basically, I mean, they're not liked, right? So I think it's bad. It really depends on how, how long the Ukrainians can keep doing this. And this, I guess, all comes down to how much we in the West are willing to help them. I mean, I don't even understand this bizarre standoff with the jets that are in Rammstein Air Base. And no, you can't give them and say, wait a minute, we have, you know, they need airplanes. I mean, this is, it's kind of, I mean, it's all beginning to feel to me, I mean, I wasn't there, of course, but reading about the Spanish Civil War, you know, just kind of mass destruction, everyone looking on, you have an international brigade there of volunteers, and the destruction just keeps going. And I think of, you know, Picasso's Guernica painting. We don't even have to go back that far, because in Syria, this is exactly what happened. And the West said, well, you know, it's terrible. And Putin was involved in that. And they destroyed Aleppo and there were millions of refugees and and people were timid. But here there's this different calculus, which you talk about, you talk about him being crazy. But when you get to the airplanes, you know, you have the United States government saying, well, you can't do a no-fly zone because if you end up in a conflict that could escalate to a nuclear conflict. And the only thing that seems to be working for Putin, so, I mean, his army is underperforming as nobody believes anything he says. The entire world has turned against him. Every assumption he made going into this was wrong. The only thing that seems to be working is when he says, well, this could have grave consequences. And then people go, well, he's crazy and he's got 6,500 nuclear weapons, so we better not do this or we better not do that. Uh, having said that, NATO's deterrence, as we discussed earlier, actually does work. He doesn't seem to go there because he knows he's going to get smacked by NATO and he, he doesn't want to do that. And so it, it does come down to a question, which is, can the world, will the world sit by and watch Putin turn you know, the cities of Ukraine into Aleppo and do nothing because they say, well, that could cause a nuclear war? Or they start engaging in a different kind of way and being able to say to Putin, look, we're going to create a no-fly zone, or we're going to create a humanitarian no-fly zone, or we're going to send in these planes, or we're going to preserve these humanitarian corridors, or we're going to preserve Western Ukraine in a defensive way. And if you violate that defensive way, we're going to defend ourselves. And if you don't, we are not going to attack you and run the risk. Now, you know, you're much closer to this than the people who are debating this on the BBC or in the U.S. are. 
what's your feeling about this game of nuclear chicken? Frankly, the rational side of me says, well, I mean, it's highly unlikely. I mean, this would be really a silly move on his part. On the other hand, the last three weeks have been utterly ridiculous on his part. So I don't know. I mean, as I said, it's, you know, there was the Richard Nixon and later uh, Ronald Reagan crazy man theory that, you know, just act crazy and then they'll cave. Maybe it's something he's learned. On the other hand, well, maybe it really is crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, certainly I would say that, okay, the no-fly zone, uh, you can read, there are enough arguments saying why it's a bad idea. Why these planes that have been donated the, by Poland and possibly others can't be given to the Ukrainians where they have pilots trained to fly MiGs. I mean, they don't know how to fly an F-35 or even an F-16, but they certainly know how to fly MiGs. Give it to them. What is stopping you? And I think the political risks actually for Europeans are greater because we're right here. I mean, we see this. And you know, one of the reasons why there has been such a change, I suspect, is that we have four EU countries bordering Ukraine. And we already have two million refugees, which is more, there's more refugees than came in 2015. And they're not stopping. And I mean, I mean, can we absorb 44 million Ukrainians out of all of this? I don't think so. This is, again, a place where Europe has to step up even more. And we don't have the problem of, you know, the pivot. We have our immediate neighborhood and we have to deal with that immediate neighborhood. And we need to be more forceful within NATO and within the European Union and do more than sanctions. Well, I'm hoping that's the next step, because I've been positively surprised by both the U.S. and the EU, but it seems that uh, given, um, given the ongoing conflict and the fact that we haven't really managed to stop any of this and it seems to be getting worse, that, in fact, we need to do more. So I'm waiting for waiting to do more. I mean, these are the kinds of times when you actually end up doing something quite radical. I mean, in fact, maybe you might say, okay, Ukraine, we're going to give you a special EU status. You're not in, but you're more than a candidate. I mean, that gives you right to access all kinds of funds. I mean, we need to think creatively here because basically since... The whole process of EU integration has been this slow, plodding, rules-based, step-by-step thing without ever having a crisis like this. We've had financial crises, but we've never had a political military crisis. I guess the question that looms large here is, what's it, what's it going to take? And, you know, you're certainly right, over the course of the past two, three weeks, what we've seen out of the EU and out of the Atlantic Alliance has consistently defied expectations, whether it's the Germans going up to 2% of GDP plus, or the Germans willing to send weapons and okay the sending of other weapons, or it's the EU putting together $1.2 billion package, or potentially fast-tracking this kind of support, or the work of other kinds of nations, Poles embracing refugees in a particularly open way. The British have not covered themselves with glory on that front. And so far, but we also had today this massive bomb go off. We also had today confirmation that the Russians 
have deployed and, and I believe used thermobaric weapons there. There was a briefing today in which a, I think it was a U.S. intelligence official seemed to indicate that there is now concern that, that Putin will use chemical weapons there. And of course, we, we saw that in, in Syria. And so the question is how fast, you've, you've been a member of the European Parliament, you worked in the European Parliament, how fast can Europe move? How likely is it that Europe sits on their hands until there's a catastrophe? They're like the U.S. You could always count on them. Well, you can count half the time on they're doing the right thing after they've tried everything else. I suspect, I mean, if you, you have that, those kind of escalatory moves, especially if there's something like chemical weapons, there will have to be genuine movement. Perhaps actually, my own prime minister gave probably one of the most forceful speeches before the European Parliament that anyone has ever given today on the need to, for action on the EU. Any really sort of horrible uh, escalatory steps on the part of Putin right now will force the EU to get even tougher. It's hard already now to waffle, but this will become very difficult. One area where I think that um, they can do something that will require a lot of swallowing on the part of the Greens in Germany is actually not to decommission the nuclear power plants, which was in store, because that only increases their reliance on Russian gas. Speaking of really horrible scenarios, the Russians also disconnected the electricity to the cooling plant of the Chernobyl decommissioned plant, but you're still have, you still have to cool the rods. This could be the, that big catastrophe even without the use of, say, nuclear weapons or kind of documented thermobaric weapons use. I mean, if we start seeing Chernobyl leaking, then we're going to, Europe is going to go berserk. What does Europe going berserk look like? I think demanding some kind of military action with it by the members inside NATO. I don't know if we'll get complete approval, but I think that it would certainly, uh, I could foresee some kind of mission to go in to secure the Chernobyl plant because. You know, if it's controlled by the same people who caused it in the first place, it doesn't really give a lot of confidence. And I mean, Chernobyl did have a huge effect on Europe. I was living in Munich at the time, and my little kid at the time couldn't even go to a sandlot because it was all contaminated. So, I mean, that's the kind of fear that what I think would certainly get Europe moving even more, maybe even get the Greens to move more. But I don't want to speculate on that. It's just that I, I don't see anything good coming out of this as long as the Putin regime is in place. And that's what's so depressing because it doesn't look like anything's going to change things. So let me ask you one last question. We've taken plenty of your time and I'm extremely grateful for it. But I would be remiss if I did because you've been really one of the great leaders in not just in your own country, but in Europe and in the world on Internet development, Estonia is a real model for the world in terms of that. And you've been actively involved in issues like cybersecurity related issues. And so far, the cyber side of this thing seems to be, and we don't know, the dog that didn't bark. We had a discussion in our podcast yesterday, and one of the participants who was a, we used to be the US commanding general of US Army in Europe, implied, that a number of steps had been taken 
to make it so that the Russians couldn't do anything. But in this escalatory scenario you talk about, one of the things that people have talked about is bigger kinds of cyber exchanges. Why do you think it hasn't happened so far? What are your expectations? No one's more surprised than I am since just <laughs> two weeks ago, I just published an article saying that in the future, wars will not be kinetic. They'll be <laughs> strictly cyber. You could, you, so, you, could still, you could still be right. Well, I mean, there are a couple of theories. First of all, one is that they are deterred. That I mean, the U.S. has sent in signals saying, don't even think about it because we can do it to you. And that's certainly... Uh, Deterrence works with nuclear and deterrence, if you tell them ahead of time, don't even think about it, can work with cyber too. And you can, you know, whatever, some little demonstration of the power of the United States to, to really do in Russia, I'm sure, has been shown. Secondly, Nakasone, I read today, uh, I mean, the head of Cyber Command said that actually the Ukrainians have been extremely effective, far more effective than people thought in actually keeping keeping things going. So, I mean, those are two factors that I think probably are at work. The Ukrainians have, just because it's rarely known, but I think uh, David Sanger even writes in his perfect weapon that, well, what, actually, I have like the entire bookshelf behind me is nothing but cyber. So I don't know which one it was that I read it in because they're all, they all kind of run together in the same place. But in any case, in 2015, there were massive cyber attacks against Ukraine, which an entire oblast took down all of the electricity. I know that because of our own experience, they asked us to come in place to get things back in order. But the, and there have been attacks after the 2015 one again, and uh, the Ukrainians have gotten pretty good. I mean, I would say they're among the best these days in um, dealing with cyber attacks. They've actually had to fight off cyber attacks. And therefore, they have certain skills that I, they have learned in practice that uh, many other countries don't have. I mean, those are three possible theories. Why? Ultimately, I don't know. It is noteworthy that actually one of the biggest ransomware groups said, Oh, we're neutral. We're not going to do anything, <laughs> which suggests that they're kind of afraid that if they side with Russia, something bad is going to happen to them. Just makes, I mean, I would say, why would you be neutral if you're living, if you're a Russian ransomware group and you make it very explicit that you will not engage in ransomware attacks if it's not fear of something very bad happening to you? Well, that's interesting because you sort of bring up the issue of cyber deterrence in a way that we haven't really talked about it before. But it will be interesting also to see how this goes, because the flip side of that is that the West engages in, to choose a term that pertains to Putin and his earlier forays in Ukraine, into kind of total hybrid warfare, where we, through sanctions, through cyber, through support, through a whole bunch of things that don't include warfare, actually try to bring a country to its knees. And that's, a, that's, another, that's another scenario. Well, look, I'm incredibly grateful that you would take the time to join us. I'm sure our listeners are extremely grateful that you have taken this time. Hopefully, at some point in the future, we'll be able to speak with you again. But it is very, very late where you are. And so I want to say at this point, thank you for joining us. 
And I want to say to all of our listeners, please, uh, you know, continue to follow what we're doing here. We're going to do something, try to do new things each day covering this, have new perspectives, although I don't think we're going to do much better than we did today. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye. Wake up each morning to our newest podcast, The Ukraine Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the latest news, developments, and the stories we're following on the Ukraine crisis from news sources from around the world. The podcast is available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and members receive access to the show via private member feed.